Thank you, Charlie. Good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. Thank you. Make yourselves comfortable. If we've not met yet, I know there's some in here I've not met. You might be from out of town. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy. I'm the teaching pastor. Looking forward to moving through this passage with you today. Just as Charlie said, we are starting Advent. And listen, I don't expect everyone to know even what that means. If you didn't grow up in the church, you might hear Advent and immediately think Christmas, maybe even use them interchangeably. If it's new to you, the idea of Advent, all it means is coming or arrival or even visit. Um, So it not only celebrates the arrival of God through a manger, it actually celebrates the arrival of God on a white horse in the person of a champion Jesus. We see this in Revelation 19, where John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. So in Advent, we celebrate Jesus coming to us as God, as a child, but he will return as a champion. And one, one Advent really doesn't even make sense without the other. They both have to be held together to build the context because the core of the gospel message, if you were to take the gospel, which I'm sure you've heard the word gospel several times this morning, if you were to take the gospel, which is God's good news for mankind through the person of Jesus, and just squeeze it and reduce it down to maybe one of its most core truths, it's that God has come near us, that he has come very close to mankind. In fact, I would submit that a distant God is a terrifying God. A God that would keep us at an arm's length and maybe look upon us with contempt, maybe ignore us, not be near. That's, that is a God that would make me feel doomed. So I like starting Advent with the one song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which, I mean, just as I say it, you probably start humming it in your head. I've had the misfortune of, of humming this song in my head for a week now. Not my favorite hymn, to be honest with you, because it's kind of somber, sounds a little bit like a dirge, right? Um, More of a dark sound to it. And that's because, listen, for good reason, the tune part was pulled away from a funeral song back in 1400, right? So it's a little bit more Russian men's choir than it is Bing Crosby and Mariah Carey, and that's probably why I'm not a big fan of how it sounds. And it's old. It's very old. It's originally composed in Latin. Like many songs, though, it has changed shape over the years as different artists have covered it and put their own fingerprints on it. Um, It's changed in sound. It's actually changed in lyrics. I looked it up on Spotify just to see how many bands or artists have covered the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. They stopped counting at 1,000. 1,000. I just kept scrolling. I thought, who does this? I just kept scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. I get, it just stops. Spotify just stops you at 1,000. So we know it's more than that. But with different voices and different styles, the core message of the song remains, and that is that God has come, and he has come very close. He has come, and he is very near. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Matthew, which Charlie just led you through to a a large extent, and we're going to go through the passage that talks about why God is calling Jesus Emmanuel in this moment through the angels. And so this is what it says in verse 18 of Matthew 1. This is going to be the passage that does all the heavy lifting for us today. And it says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being just a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and this is Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the main idea of this passage is just as advertised through prophets hundreds and hundreds, up to 700 years before this, God arrives in the person of Jesus to save his people. That's the main idea of this passage. God approaching. God approaching is real beautiful news for us because mankind, this is just our default setting. This is how we are built. We typically feel lonely, abandoned, and unknown. Typically. This is where we're at. The gospel finds us in very needy people and needy for companionship that won't disappoint. That's really what everybody wants, is companionship that just isn't going to leave us hanging. We feel the need for this type of companionship as kids on a playground all the way up to the corporate jungle. We are looking for companionship. So I want you to consider the setting for this passage because the setting kind of helps us understand what's going on. There had been over four centuries of silence before this happens. Not because God is disinvested with creation and even with his people. He's just silent. That's why some people call this the silent period or the silent era. This is also why we don't have scripture between Malachi and Matthew for this very reason. And for this reason, if you were one of these people walking around and working and playing in this time, it would feel, it would feel like God was very separate, like he was very distant. But in the fullness of time, and according to God's promise and his brilliant creativity and his thoughtfulness for us, he comes close to mankind, not just with words like he had with the prophets, not even just through an angel here or there. He comes himself in the form of Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel. That's how, that's how close he comes. But the, but the big question, and, and I, I always try to lead us through the Bible by carrying questions to it, ho- hopefully nailing the questions we all genuinely have. And the one question I want to carry to this passage is, is it really good news that God comes close to you and me if we don't feel it? Like, just feel it. Is it really good news? Like, is it really good news for you if God is in the room, but he's just auditing you, observing you? He's present, but he's not really close. He's there, but not invested. I mean, does that change your Tuesday very much? Because I think it's a valuable question for us. There are so many people who do not love Jesus, so many people who do love Jesus, even leaders in the church, maybe even you, feel unknown, alone, abandoned. I mean, I pick up these words from King David in Psalm 13. Stay where you're at, Matthew. But David says this, How long, O Lord? How long, 
Oh, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long? I mean, this isn't David debating the existence of God here. He's not. He's debating the presence, the closeness, the empathy of God. And we all understand this, right? I mean, you've had moments where you're like, okay, God, listen, I believe you. <laughs> I have a Bible and I believe it. And I believe you see this. But is this, is this how it's going to be? Like, I, I get it. You're there. I'm not arguing your existence. I'm still a Christian. I'm going to church on Sunday. I get all that. But is this how it's going to be between you and me? What we really want is an empathetic God. That's what we want. And we've all had friends who love us, who call themselves close friends, people that you would even say are close to you, but they don't exactly understand you. And that's really the difference between empathy and sympathy, isn't it? There is a difference. Sometimes we get it mixed up in our head, which one is which, and we use them interchangeably. Sympathy is where you pity the situation of someone else, and you're kind of glad you're not in it, right? Empathy is where you get it. You're either in it with them or you've been there, right? You have scars to match their scars. That is empathy. Sympathy is a young man who's never had kids before coming up to someone who has had kids and saying, hey, listen, I hear you're not getting a lot of sleep. I'm sympathetic to that, man. I know how hard it is to not get any sleep. It must be brutal, you know, to take care of a human being when they can't even thank you and you never get any. It must be hard. That's sympathy. They pity you. They're really glad they're not you. Empathy is where you have had a few kids and you still have bags under your eyes from 17 years of getting up at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., something like that. That is the person that can look at the new dad and say, yo, I get you. <laughs> I get you. There is a tunnel and there's a light on the other side of it. It's going to be okay. We're all going to be okay. That's empathy, right? That's, that's the difference between it. Now, what we want is empathy. Sometimes all we get is sympathy. They're both valuable and they're both helpful. But empathy weighs more, doesn't it? Empathy brings something to the picture. I mean, Job is actually a classic example of this in our scriptures because there is a moment, a pretty long one actually, in the story of Job where his friends don't bring empathy, but what do they bring? Sympathy. And a special kind of sympathy because it's laced with critique and rebuke. In fact, it was their lack of empathy that kind of inflamed his suffering, right? He was suffering, and then his suffering got considerably worse. I mean, they were actually better friends when they didn't say anything. That long period where they were just silent, that's when they felt the most empathetic. That's when they seemed like good friends. Incidentally, this is how a lot of people see God. The one who is there, but not very helpful, shakes his head in contempt, and when he does choose to enter our mess, it's with a clipboard and a progress report. Not quite the friend we had hoped for. We look at God as sometimes being sympathetic, but not empathetic. And Advent preaches a different gospel than that, right? You see, you were designed at a garden level. You were designed in the very beginning to be companioned, if I could just make up a word, right? A word that doesn't make sense, but the word you understand, companioned. And we are unsatisfied as a people when we are unknown and alone. We find a deep a deep doom in our life when we are not companioned well. That's why whenever you read the headlines and you hear about a shooter in a school or a club or a church or a Walmart, when they start 
peeking behind the curtain, you usually find the same, just the same description, the same avatar, which is someone who just felt alone, not known, rejected, abandoned, not companioned well. You see, since the garden, we were made to connect at a soul level. Of course, because of the fall in the garden, rich companionship, it comes hard, doesn't it? It comes difficult. It's hard to build something like that, which is why whenever those who know us the best don't understand what we're going through, don't you just feel more alone than ever? Makes it feel even worse. And to make matters worse, and they do get a little bit worse, we don't even know ourselves very well, do we? Have you ever been with a really good counselor or a really good pastor who has great counseling skill or a great friend who has given you insight into why you do what you do? Just to think in your head, man, that's why I do that. I've always wondered, that's, that, but that, that's it. That's why I do that. What else do I do? What, I wonder what else is lurking behind my behavior and my thoughts. We don't understand our own motivations. We don't know why we fear what we fear. We don't know why we like what we like. We don't even know what makes us tick on a daily basis, which is why when you ask a kid that you kind of walk in on them and they've done something and you say, what are you doing? And they just kind of look at you with a blank stare on their face. Hey, friend, they don't know why they did that, right? But here's how I know that, because adults do the same thing. Why are you doing that? I don't, know. I don't really know. I have no idea why I'm doing that. You see, we walk this world feeling unknown to ourselves and unknown to others. And what we will do, because it is such a special hell and such a special suffering that we go through, we will try to fix it. And we'll actually roll up our sleeves and try to fix it without Jesus. We'll try to get around this without Jesus. And this is, it usually comes in two flavors. One of our strategies is we will actually develop a false image of ourself that we know that the world loves. The world values this type of a person, so we will squeeze ourselves into that person, hoping that the world loves us. And guess what? Sometimes the world does, right? But you don't feel any better because it's not you. You're not really living in your own skin. So you feel maximally unknown in that moment. Or we join the viable race to find some definition in a pronoun or a grouping Millions of people today are grouping themselves with others, hoping for what? Companionship, to be companion. This is who I am. This is my identity. This is my tribe. These are my pronouns. This is who I am, looking again for companionship. And it's not just the world at large. This is in the church. I mean, for the last 25 years of being in the ministry, I have seen the gold rush to get to the new, bigger and better personality profile. I counted the other day because I keep all of the results. I feel like I've taken them all. Maybe I have. I don't know. But I looked. I've taken nine over the last 25 years. Nine personality profiles, right? And if you put them all in a blender, I'm sure they're somewhat similar, right? And some of them are better than others. Some of them are. Some of them are really, really good tools, but what it shows is that we all carry a longing to know ourselves and know how to get along with others intimately and accurately. But because of the dragon in the garden and the ensuing fall of man, this is ruined. It's ruined. But because of our hero on the cross, it is repaired. And you and I, if you are in Christ, are finally, eternally companioned, perfectly companioned. 
The Bible does a good job of showing this, even in the Proverbs. Proverbs 18, 24 says this. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And we get this, right? This is a truism. A proverb is a truism. It's a wisdom principle, right? It's not a promise, but it's a truism. But, but we've seen this. Not all companions are helpful, right? Not all. That's why we tell our kids, be careful who you hang out with, right? We, there's many proverbs over that as well. But some will say they understand you, and they won't. Most won't care. But there's one. There's one that is closer to you, hear me now, than you are with yourself. (laughs) They're closer to you than you are. One understands you better than you understand yourself. Understands why you do what you do, why you think what you think. One gets why you do better than you do. Why you feel the way you feel better than you do. And here's the best part. With all of Jesus' intimate knowledge of you, he still likes you. That's fascinating to me. He sees everything corrupt and does not reject you. This is a friend, a companion, unlike any other. So one of the verses to the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is O come thou, day spring from on high, and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Dispense the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. It, it's a passage, it's a stanza rather, about God drawing nigh, coming close, arriving tightly with us. And this is a big part of the gospel message. Jesus coming close to us to fix our core fracture that is a garden-level problem. And he's not just a companion, but he's an interpreter. He knows us, our very own hearts. And I find a strange and comfortable beauty in this, that he knows us that deeply. And one of my favorite passages is in Hebrews. And if you have a Bible and you can turn there quickly, Hebrews will be another great passage to turn to. It's a great uh, partner passage with Matthew as well. But Hebrews 4, verse 15, says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of of need. Okay, this is what this is saying. There's two big things that you have to pull out of this, two big pieces of theology that are helpful for your everyday. One is that Jesus was tempted without those temptations birthing sin. If you were to go and spend some time later on this week looking through the first part of James, James talks about that, right? There are temptations that you will feel that won't lead to sin. Just because you're tempted doesn't mean you're sinning, right? You'll feel a temptation and you will spot it for what it is or as Paul says, take that thought captive, you will sense the temptation and be able to push it away, to turn your back on it. And that's good. That's how we grow. There are temptations that we forfeit ground to and it it turns into sin. It gives birth to sin. Jesus was tempted in all ways, even the deepest ways, and yet he never sinned. This is important for us because he was fully human. said this last week just for a minute, that he is fully 100% human. He had creative thoughts. He had skin. He'd get sick. He'd get tired. He would get hungry. He was fully 
100% human. And he was fully 100% God, our spotless priest who became our spotless sacrifice for a very spotted people, severely spotted people, right? No more grave, no more death. Our spotless champion came and he cleaned our spots. Another stanza in the same song is, O come thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. So he took your grave and replaced it with his home, with his very home. The second big piece of theology we could kind of extract from Hebrews is that because Jesus experienced the totality of humanity, he has deep empathy for us. He's a priest that understands. He doesn't just have sympathy for you, friend. He has empathy, and that weighs more, which means he'll never look at you and ask you, why did you do that? Why did you do that? Come on now. What are you doing? He knows. He knows the answer already. I mean, have you ever found somebody that has traveled the exact same shadows that you have? I mean, their story is so identical to your story that they can intuit you on a deep level and you can intuit them on a deep level. They don't just finish your thoughts. They finish your emotions. There's so much you don't have to say. I mean, those are valuable relationships, right? It's so rare when that happens. We don't want to let that type of a person go. We, we look at them, and even if we don't say it with our lips, we say it with our heart. You get me. Like, you get me, and I get you. Those are very beautiful relationships. We see this uh, in, in groups like Alcoholics Anonymous, recovery groups, Narcotics Anonymous, groups like that, because you could come in and not only be known deeply, you won't be judged, right? Not judged, well, as much as we like that, and as much as we see groups function well that are built like that, the pinnacle of these relationships is the one that we have with Christ, the one we were deeply known and not judged because we are in him, and he has replaced our grave with his home. You were created to be supremely satisfied in the closeness of Jesus. That's how you were created. You see, the power of this gospel advent is undeniable. There's so much power in it. It's the battery pack for gospel living every day, right? It does matter for our Tuesdays. And so how does this change our lives? I'm going to go through three realms and how this changes our lives before we move on. One is it changes us personally. Second is it changes us communally. And the third is it will change us missionally. So what, if I could break it down, what that means is, is it changes how we exist as a disciple and how, how we grow as a disciple. Then it contends with how we interact with each other, right? So horizontally, then vertically, or rather the other way around, vertically and horizontally. And then it changes how we are as missionaries as a community as well. Right? Upward, inward, outward. That's how this changes us. And personally, what we see is we could quickly draw near to Emmanuel, this priest, with confidence. With confidence. Because listen, he knows all of your secret, hidden thoughts all the way to where they started, all the way to their origin, seeing the deepest that they've ever gone, and he still holds you close. Man, I love this about God, because I know if all my trash was on the table for all of humanity to see, and all of their detail, all of the excruciating detail, you would reject me probably. I would reject myself probably. With all of it just sitting there, mankind would have a problem with that. But God has a clear view of all of this, 
and he loves me deeply. In fact, he likes me, and there's a difference. And he doesn't love me because I'm lovable, but because a spotless Jesus took my repulsive life upon himself, and now I'm no longer repulsive in the eyes of God. That's a, that's a game changer, that I'm in Christ a new creation, and this is what this means. When I fail and when I sin, no more skulking towards God with this heavy reluctance because I have failed. I can boldly run to him, as Hebrew says, with confidence, which means I don't have to let my relationship with Jesus breathe for three weeks before I dare open up the Bible or pray or show up to something like this. I don't have to do that. We do this with each other, don't we? We sin against each other, and then we just need some time apart to wash the sting away from what we have done. Right? You did this to me, and I did this to you. And listen, I forgive you, but I can't look at you right now. You need to go and give me some space. You need to go in the other room. You need to not call me. I forgive you. I'm just not ready to be around you right now. That's what we do. We do this. We just leave. But when we carry this over to how we interact with God, what we're doing is we're building a pseudo-savior that is no longer Jesus. No longer Jesus. Now the calendar is. Now space and time have cleansed the sting away. When we're reluctant to find Jesus after our failures, it's because we feel like we have not served enough time yet. If we do that, that's dangerous, friends. It's dangerous if you catch yourself doing that. If you've done something yet again, you blew it yet again, and you find a hesitancy to just quickly run and drop at the feet of Jesus and adore him and worship him and be adored by him. If that's a problem and you have a hard time with that, that's because you're carrying some of this over. It's not with confidence that you go with Jesus, agreed? It's with reluctance, it's with hesitance, because why? There hasn't been enough time. But what is time then? It's, it's basically a Hail Mary. I need three weeks and 19 Bible studies. I need two weeks of good performance I need to sign up for a volunteer list at the church or something like that in order for me to come close to Jesus. That's just the same thing as saying three Hail Marys or burning an ox. It's no different than any other sacrifice you can give, which what that means is, is that Jesus' blood was insufficient to cover that sin. You need six weeks on the calendar. You need more Bible studies to make you feel clean enough to approach him yet. Hebrew says you could come with confidence now, now, right now. That's what the gospel says is I don't need to shame myself or perform impressively for some long season. I could come close now because Jesus was already impressive for me. This is what this means for your Tuesday, by the way. It means your repentance can be at warp speed. Warp speed. Did you trip? Get up. Did you fail? Tell them about it. Did you, did you mess up royally again? Find Christ as fast as you can. Warp speed. So it changes us personally, but it changes us communally in how we interact with each other as well. A passage like this and the idea of Emmanuel means that we no longer need to break each other by demanding too much from each other. Sometimes we could demand so much from each other, what we're really demanding is stuff that only Jesus can do. We're requiring other people to meet our needs in such a way that we're asking of them something only Christ is able to do. For instance, if I need you to be impressed with me, if I just require it from you, that you just are impressed with me, and yet you reject me instead, my temptation will be to reject you back, right? It breaks the relationship because I need something from you. Or with what we're talking about today, if I need you to know me at a deep soul level and you refuse to, 
Well, I can just push back and just reject you as well. I can, I can get back to you by pushing you away. But if God knows me better than I know myself and I'm satisfied in that, I no longer require you to know me deeply. I don't need it anymore. It might be nice. It's good to be companioned. It's good. I'd say it's healthy, right? But I don't have to require it from you, which means I'm no longer breaking the relationship. I'm free to live selflessly. I'm free to be rejected. I'm not sustained by everyone's empathy because I'm content with what God has done for me. So I'm accepted. I'm free to invest in you without reciprocation. That's what that means. We don't break each other anymore. Now the world has a counterfeit version of this and this is what it looks like and we're all attracted to it. It's the person that walks around and says, I don't need anybody. They're autonomous. They're firewalled from everybody. I don't need anybody. I'm good on my own. I don't care what you think about me. I'm beyond that. I'm above that. That's not healthy though. And it's not what Christianity pushes. And that's not what the Bible describes. Christianity is, is, I actually care what you think about me. I actually do care, right? And, and things do hurt. I'm just not sustained. I'm not ruined by how you look at me, which is very different. So it changes us personally, changes us communally, and it does change us as a people on mission because we export a warmer gospel, a very deep and warm gospel where the city is actually free to come broken and very authentic with a very deep hope to grow People, not all people, I'm going to be careful with how broad the brush is here, but people will largely avoid something like this, which this isn't church, this is just a gathering. We are the church, we all get that. But they'll avoid large church gatherings because they expect to feel judged and measured when they walk through the doors, right? And friends, listen, that's not totally unwarranted, is it? I mean, meaning that, that didn't come from a vacuum, the, historically, the church has a pretty spotty record here. Uh, churches are just full of broken people led by broken, broken leaders, doing the best we can with broken systems to serve everybody. Man, I mean, we do. We judge each other. Even more so the people that come in off the street. People that come in from a life, they'll come in during Christmas, they'll come in during Easter, you won't see them. That, we'll, we'll judge them for that, won't we? We'll, we'll judge them. And that's a cold gospel. It's a cold gospel that says for you to be accepted, you need to be like us. Your attendance needs to match ours. Your language needs to match ours. Everything needs to look like us, or at least a better version of us, to be accepted. The warm gospel says that Jesus came close to us first as Emmanuel, God with us. He says, come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, all who are oppressed, depressed, sad, lonely, unknown, rejected, wounded, beat up, fatigued, burned out, confused, tired, come all. But friends, certainly the church has issues. The bride can act very broken. Our groom never does. I've had to say this twice in the last two weeks to two different families about legacy, about our church saying very simply, hey, listen, I'm going to promise you one thing about our church. We're going to drop you. We're straight up going to mishandle you. We won't mean to do it. It's, it's just going to happen. Let's be honest. I mean, t- f- f- first, I, I'm first. I, I won't respond to a text in a timely manner. Probably won't. 
I'll forget something. I'll forget your kid's middle name. Something, something's going to happen. You're going to feel dropped. And guess what? You're going to drop me too. You could drop the person next to you. We ding and we dent each other, meaning our best, because we're a broken people. I can promise you that. That's what I can promise you. You'll be failed. But I can also promise you Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough that that would not ruin you once that happens. He is so much enough for us that it doesn't destroy us when we happen to ding and dent each other because we are all growing together. That I can also promise. This is just a warmer, I think that's a warmer gospel, one that the city can actually appreciate and needs to hear. The fact that we're not perfect, but we're actually perfect for each other. We're not perfect, but we're perfect for each other. And we're perfect for Jesus too, by the way. Just the idea that you are not trespassing. You are welcome here. And friend, listen, if you, if you are far from Christ or you're watching and you're far from Christ, you're not trespassing. I'm super glad to have you here. You're welcome. And, and you think you're a mess? Get in line. We're all a mess. Have you been wounded? Same. You've got scars. We've got scars. We're not better than you. We've just been rescued by a Christ who has come to us first. So listen, as we, as we finish this, there, there is definitely a place as we sit in front of Matthew. And by the way, that passage in Matthew came from a 700-year-old prophecy from Isaiah. As we look at this and as we sing the song, Emmanuel, O come, O come, Emmanuel, as we sing and as we pray later, there is room for us to repent, for us to pivot in our lives in light of what the gospel says to us. One is, some of us, we're not very bold before Jesus. What I mean is, not that we come to him with our chest out, but we come with the confidence that we are free to approach God because of what Jesus has done. And we just don't see that in ourselves. We're not very confident. We just need space. We need time. We need to clean ourselves. We're looking for sponges and rags, soap, anything we could do to make ourselves lovable and likable again. And friend, that's not a confident life before Christ. And, and let me tell you this, it requires repentance. We're not victims of that. It is us saying with our own mouths, the blood that Jesus cast down from the cross wasn't good enough. I have to come alongside and add to it. That's what it says. It requires repentance. Another is that we do break each other, don't we? Don't we have relationships that I won't call them codependent because I'm not smart, but I will say that we require things from certain people in order to just not come unstitched at the very seams. We need people to behave a certain way. And as long as that's you, you will never be able to love that person totally because it's from a selfish place and not a selfless place. So we have to repent for that. And the other is that we are just very, very good at judging others, very good at it. And that just requires blanket repentance as well. So if you're here or maybe you're watching online and you find yourself far from Jesus, Maybe, maybe Advent is just the, the season that you normally gravitate like a, mag, like a magnet back to, the church, back to the church. You hear churchy things said by churchy people. Let me say you, to you right now, Christ is one who has come close to people that could not be clean enough on their own. And even if you have not read very much of the Bible, even if you've not worked your way through the Gospels, you already know Jesus to be one that came close to tax collectors and prostitutes, and lepers. People that would say either internally or physically, unclean. Unclean. I'm not clean enough for you to come close to me. And he would just come close to them, wouldn't he? Why? Because God has arrived. 
He has arrived. He has advented. And he didn't, come to, he didn't come to us expecting us to rise to his level. He came to us knowing that we couldn't. And you need to know that. And I get it. I don't know what caused your wound with the church or with Christianity. I don't know where your beef is at. But whoever did that to you, that person needs Jesus just as bad as you do. You're not better than them. You are them. But I am happy to say that the biggest problem you carried in with you today is solved by Christ coming close to mankind. He is even close to you today. His spirit is even here and active today in the business of changing hearts. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's you. Maybe you find yourself at a place where you are saying, God, I need you to change me. I just need you to change my heart. I need to be companioned by you. I need to be saved and rescued by you. That's my prayer, is that that's happening for you today. And we're here if you need to talk to somebody.